morning. My name is R. Dallas Green. Glad to see you. My subject this morning is the path to maturity. And if you're new to grace, <laughs> if you're new to grace, you need to know what you're getting into. Um, if you've been here for a while, you need a reminder because we're really all about discipleship here at this church. We exist to be disciples who are making other disciples who are living their life and loving like Jesus. We're in a series entitled Be One, Make One, uh, which is our model of discipleship. You've seen in the past we've talked about intentional leadership, relational environments, reproducible processes. Um, a key verse for us as a church is Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, which says, Jesus said, follow me. The invitation is to follow after Jesus, to make a decision of the head that I'm going to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you. There's a transformational process, a change from the inside out in the life of a believer, and I will make you into a fisher of men, joining Jesus on mission. Discipleship, the goal then of every believer as they mature is to make disciples who make other disciples. And those disciples we make are, not surprisingly, following after Jesus. They're being transformed by the Holy Spirit, and they're joining God on this great mission of restoring people back to God. So what is spiritual maturity? Let's go ahead and get into it. A person who is mature is fully developed, is fully grown, and is able to reproduce. Now, churches will have different definitions of maturity. Perhaps you've been in a church where maturity was defined as gaining knowledge, taking a class, right? Going deep in the Greek and the Hebrew, parsing the tenses of the verbs, impressing people with your profundity. But have you ever been around a very capable teacher who was arrogant, proud, thought everybody else was dumb, couldn't really love people? Would you say that person is mature? Immaturity is the state of not being fully grown, not being developed. The process of parenting is helping our sons and daughters move toward maturity. I think maturity is very closely tied with things like discernment and wisdom. Um, when they're little, you know, you go to the grocery store, the kids pitch a fit, right? They want something, they don't get it, they pitch a fit. So they, you know, we say to our kids, you get what you get and you don't pitch a fit, right? But then they don't get what they want and they pitch a bigger fit, right? Uh, and then there's drama and there's tears. I remember when I was eight years old, there was a baseball field behind my house and we would go and play baseball. And there was one of my friends who always, his dad would give him brand new baseballs to play with, clean white baseballs and baseball bats. But he would get tagged out or, you know, a call we made against him. And he would take his bat and his ball and he went home. Now, why? He's eight years old and he's immature. We're not surprised when an eight-year-old pitches a fit, pitches a bigger fit, takes his ball and bat and goes home. But are you surprised when a 48-year-old <laughs> pitches a fit, pitches another fit, doesn't get their way and goes home? People who are immature have these quick emotional escalations. They tend to blame other people when things go wrong. They have really poor impulse control, and they typically don't learn from their mistakes. Why? They're immature. So the goal of the Christian life is to produce men and women who demonstrate the very character qualities of Jesus Christ. Now, deep 
in your heart, isn't that what you desire? We want to be a whole person, a mature person. God's desire for us is to produce mature, whole, productive, useful people. But wars, what, wars, what wars against the Spirit's work in our life is the flesh, the sinful nature. I'd like to think, <laughs> the Bible says have a sober estimate of yourself, I'd like to think that I operate most of my life with a pretty high threshold of maturity, but I have my moments. We all have our moments of immaturity. I love to ride bikes. So I have this ride that includes bicycling up what's called Green Street in Middletown by the school. One day I was bicycling up Green Street and a pickup came very close. I would call it unnecessarily close. I would call it almost grazing me on my bicycle. Now, me being the spiritual giant that I am, <laughs> I spit on the truck. I escalated the situation. I didn't write it off. I didn't let it pass. I didn't let it go. And the young man had some interesting expletives to tell me. He questioned my legitimacy. He has things to say about my mother. He used language. He used language I hadn't heard in a while. And he swung back around and he threw his bottle at me. Then a third time he came with another round of profanity. I guess I set him off. Honestly, I thought we were going to have a fight. So, what did I learn from my immaturity? <laughs> the scripture says, be quick to listen, slow to anger, slow to speak. And I would say slow to spit. <laughs> Try not to escalate the situation. I just wonder if you have any immature moments. So, here we go. Um, when Paul was writing to the Philippian church, he said, I have not obtained all this. What's he talking about? Being fully mature. I have not perfect. He's saying he, is, he has a share of issues he was working on. Do you? He's wrestling with the impulses of the flesh. Do you? He's tempted sometimes, and he succumbs. Do you? But I'm pressing on toward the mark, he says, toward maturity, toward Christ-likeness, forgetting what lies behind me, looking forward to what's ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race. So, toward that end, I'd like you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 as we talk about spiritual maturity. And I've got six questions I want to ask. You see, Paul had a calling upon his life. He was called out of darkness into light, called out of this world into relationship with Christ. He had his encounter with Jesus. He met him on the road to Damascus, called him by name. He gave him his assignment. So here we're talking about what happens after salvation and life of a believer. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, I, Paul speaking, says, a prisoner for serving the Lord. I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm not a prisoner of Caesar. I'm a prisoner for serving the Lord. I beg you, to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you've been called by God. Question number one, there's going to be six of these coming at you, is am I, are you walking in a manner worthy of your calling? We are on a spiritual journey. We're on a walk. The walk 
describes our lifestyle. Jesus walked with Adam in the garden. They loved their walks together. They had fellowship in the garden. Adam could ask him questions like, how did it all begin? Why am I here? Adam and, Adam and Jesus strolled together to explain things to him. But then because of sin, the fellowship was broken. Adam and Eve felt shame. They covered themselves with fig leaves. They hid. And God asked, where are you, Adam? What have you done? And the reason why Jesus came was to restore the relationship that was broken between man and God. And when we are called, we are called to salvation, but we're also called to walk with him. Well, how are we to walk? Verse 2 says, we're always to be humble and gentle, to be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. These are the character qualities of Jesus Christ. Jesus was humble enough to wash his disciples' dirty feet. To live like Jesus is to live with humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. And Jesus was gentle with people. We say to the, to the brother, you know, be gentle with the baby. We say to the new driver, be gentle with those brakes. Don't slam them on. Because if you're not, you're going to crush somebody. Jesus was gentle. To be like Jesus is to be gentle. He wasn't harsh or rough. And be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults. Be patient. I was uh, driving with my wife Debbie along the turnpike and we came to one of those toll booths and we had exhausted our um, capacity to pay. And so we sat there for some 20 minutes talking to the toll booth person trying to reload our easy pass. And the trucks behind me were not really too patient. And to be honest with you, I was losing a little patience myself. I just wonder if there's any air in your life where you need to be working at patience. Jesus is patient, making allowance for my faults. He loves me as I am, but he doesn't want me to stay as I am. Right now, they're playing a golf tournament, the PGA tournament in Rochester, New York. And golfers will say, you want to stay patient, and the birdies eventually will come. Stay patient, and the opportunities will come. And make every effort, he says, to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. What does it mean to be unified with people in our church? How can we foster unity? Each of us has a role to play, and each of us has much to gain from unity. What is unity? Does unity mean that we all like the same kind of pizza? Does unity mean we all watch the same television shows or listen to the same music? Of course not. We're different. Unity is not uniformity. Unity in the church is coming together around a common vision. Upon seeing what God has asked us to be and joining in that mission together. Unity is recognizing we're stronger together than we are individually. Unity is really about having fellowship with one another. We need to embrace the differences because the person beside you may be indeed a great teacher. The person behind you may be a great encourager. The person in front of you may be able to make great brownies. 
No person here is great at everything, but we need each other. And we need to believe the best about each other, not the worst. If we believe the best about each other, we'll experience unity. If we, if we believe the worst, we'll experience disunity. And then we work through conflicts, right? Because relationships can get messy. We will definitely, at one point or another, hit conflict. The question is, how will we respond? Will we pull away or will we work through the conflict? So what the scripture says here is that we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the very bond of peace. Are you working at experiencing unity, maintaining unity? There are ample issues to divide us. We tend to divide about our opinions and preferences. People have opinions about musical style. People have preferences about preaching style. People have opinions about politics. But if we're ever going to be unified, it will be around the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the ancient world, Jews and Gentiles hated each other. Jesus united the Jews and Gentiles in his body when in his own very own body on the cross, he broke down the barrier. He reconciled both groups together by means of his death on the cross. It says in verses 4 through 6, there is now one Lord, Jesus Christ. There is now one faith of all believers. There is now one baptism of the Spirit for Jews and Gentiles. There is one body of believers. There is one Spirit living inside of us. There is only one hope. And there is one God and Father who is over all, who is in all, and who is living through all. Is there any hope for America with all the divisions that we see? The only hope that will break down the division and build unity is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the cross unifies us. It brings us together. Are we working at unity? Are we experiencing unity? Are we maintaining unity? My advice to you when you gather is to not bring up controversial political questions that divide us. Because everybody has their opinion, right? You see, God has a team. And this is the locker room. And we, we get to go on the field and play. We are all only players. The good news is God has chosen us to be part of his team. There was a day when I played baseball. And then I hung up my cleats. And I had to become just a, flan, a fan to go into the stands. The church staff are the coaches equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. If you are a Christian, you are on the field, you're on the team. You have a position to play. Your contributions are vital and significant. If you aren't yet serving, I want to get you onto the field. You know, Jesus himself was filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit. How did Jesus do ministry? When he was baptized, remember, the Holy Spirit came upon him. Jesus was anointed, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus dies on a cross and says, it is finished. I paid the penalty for your sin. Jesus then conquered death by rising from the dead. And he made a promise to his disciples. He said, I want you to wait for the Holy Spirit because 
that will enable you to do ministry with God's power. So God sent his Holy Spirit so we can follow in the footsteps of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is a gift, but he also gives gifts to believers. Different Christians have different gifts, but all given by the Holy Spirit. Question, are you using the gift that God has given you? Look at verse number 7. However, he has given to each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. That's why the scriptures say, when he ascended on high, he led a captive, a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Notice that it says he ascended. That clearly means that Christ also descended into our lowly world. And the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than the heavens, so they might fill the entire universe with himself. God has given to each one of us a special gift through his generosity. Every believer has a never-ending reserve of spiritual wealth. It's all for the good of the body. Christ himself descended into the lower parts, into earth. And then he ascended to the heavens far above to fill all things. And he gave gifts to his people. A spiritual gift is a skill or an ability that enables a Christian to perform a function in the body of Christ. The Lord gives gifts for the common good. And the function of the gifts is to build up the body. And the spiritual gifts are part of who you are in Christ. Last week, um, it was Mother's Day, and you saw that Sharon gave um, cupcakes to all the women. The giving of the cupcakes was an expression of Sharon's gift of hospitality. You see, she loves to welcome people and bless people. We have seen this amazing marvel of Michelle Marcelli, this gifted teacher who spent all of COVID studying about apologetics. And what you see in Michelle is the outpouring of a gift that God has given her. Now, God has given his gifts to the church. He goes on to say in verse 11 that God has given some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastor teachers. The apostles and the prophets laid the foundation for the church. The evangelists are teaching the gospel, right? Sharing the gospel. But the pastor teachers are equipping people to do the work of ministry, to build up the body. You see, Jesus appointed within his church certain offices. Why did God give these gifts? The saints will be equipped, built up for the work of service. The purpose of gathering is to strengthen and build up the body. This is the purpose of the church. God has poured out his blessings upon us. Why? When the church gathers, the primary purpose is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You see, the pastors teach and equip the saints, feed the saints. You see, when you're very new in the faith, you need to be fed and cleansed. When I was just a little baby boy, my mother would feed me, and she would take a spoon and put food into my mouth. And then she would 
clean me. Sometimes I've come home so dirty, she'd get a bucket and a water and a brush and just scrub me down because I was dirty. I didn't know how to clean myself. But as you mature, what happens is you're able to feed yourself and you're able to clean yourself. You know that when there's sin in your life, you need to confess that to the Lord. And you need to be in the Word feeding yourself, you see? Church becomes supplemental. When you're just a baby, you need to be fed. You need to be cleansed. But as you grow up, you learn how to feed yourself. So what does God do through these gifted people? Look at verse number 13. It says, now here's the purpose for the church. It says their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. And this will continue until we all come to unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. God wants us to be unified. God wants us to know the person of Jesus Christ, the full knowledge. God wants us to be mature. You know, there was a time in Peter's life when he did not know Jesus. He must have wondered what this carpenter's son, this carpenter was doing beside the Sea of Galilee. He had heard some of Jesus' teaching. He was teaching the people beside the shore. And then Jesus asked permission to go on side of his boat. And then he said to Peter, I want you to push out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Peter said, you know, Lord, we've been fishing all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, for the first time in his life, he was going to obey the word of the Lord. Because you say so, we'll do it. So Peter went fishing that morning and he let down his net and he caught so much fish that the net began to break. And then he bowed before Jesus and said, depart from me for I am a sinful man. And Jesus said, don't be afraid, Peter. From now on, you're going to be catching, catching men. And Peter left everything to follow after Jesus. He entered into the knowledge of the Son. He entered into a journey of coming to know Jesus and walking with him. So let me ask you a question. Are you growing in knowledge. Are you growing in knowledge? We will continue to grow until we reach unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God so that we become mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Knowledge, according to the Bible, is not what you know. Many people are educated beyond their level of obedience. Knowledge, according to the Bible, is applied knowledge. It's putting it into practice. We are to be in the Word that the Word would be in us. To be in, to be in Christ is to say that Christ is in us. Our attitudes and actions are beginning to change. The unity of the faith is the full knowledge of Christ. The knowledge of the Son of God is experiential. So we pray for a spirit of wisdom and revelation that God would continue to reveal himself to us. Why do we want to grow in the knowledge of God? It says in verse 14 that we will no longer be immature like children, tossed and blown about by every 
new wind of teacher, new wind of teaching. We don't want to hook our wagon to the latest fad or the latest trend. People will watch shows like the History Channel and say, Pastor R, why don't you teach from the book of Tobith? I say, why? They say, I saw it on the History Channel. Or why don't you teach about Jesus' many wives? I said, what channel have you been watching? The History Channel? We don't want to get caught up in the latest rabbi's teaching, the latest prophecy. Why do people get caught up in these things? They lack knowledge. And so I say this, have you seen this? I will say, have you read the Bible? We need to know what's in the Word. We love children, but we see in children a certain degree of immaturity. They move from one thing to another. When I'm with my grandkids, they say, Pop, can we play Legos? I say, sure, we can play Legos. Shortly later, Pop, can we do crayons? Sure, we can do crayons. Hey, Pop, can we... Uh, Play marbles? Sure, we can play marbles. Pop, can we watch Mario Brothers? It's hard for them to stick with just one thing. They move from one thing to another. One of the signs of immaturity is a person moves from one trend to the next. They've watched, they read a book, they've gone to a conference, they've um, listened to a podcast, and they're shifting from one thing to the other. We get we get swept off our feet by wrongful interpretations of the Bible. One teacher says, I don't agree with Paul with all of his teaching about marriage. Another teacher says, I have this interpretation. If a homosexual couple loves each other, shouldn't they be able to marry each other? Misinterpretation is the starting point, and before long, deception happens, and we begin to drift from the truth. Stabilization happens by the exposition of Scripture rightly understood and applied. It is the Word of God being taught. It is the Word of God being understood. It is the Word of God being applied. Question number five. Are we speaking the truth in love to one another? Oof. God desires truth in our inner being. Jesus said you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. God wants his people committed to the truth. But God wants us to communicate that truth with love. What is love? When we really love somebody, we're seeking after their well-being. When we speak the truth into someone's life, we want to build that person up and not tear them down. A story is told of a man who had a five-year-old daughter who was stealing cookies. The rule in their household was one cookie per day, but he began to notice the amount of cookies in the jar was rapidly decreasing. Apparently, she was an undercover cookie thief. He said to her, have you been taking cookies? Have you been taking cookies when you knew that was breaking the rule? No, Daddy, I haven't been doing that. He pressed, are you sure you haven't been stealing cookies. His daughter wouldn't look him in the eye. No, Daddy, I don't know where those cookies went. He let it go for a while, and a few hours later, his daughter came to him in tears. Is there something you want to tell me, he said. I took the cookies, Dad, and I'm sorry. 
Now, the father told the story because his heart was moved. It was a breakthrough. He knew that if his daughter continued lying, it would corrode her from the inside out. Even worse, over time, she could develop a hard heart, a heart insistent on maintaining a falsehood, pretending to be something she was not. She would have felt a growing distance from her father. In the United States, we have a crisis of truth-telling, even among our top leaders and all through our culture. If people don't like the news, they call it fake news. The effect of this casual approach to the truth is demoralizing. We are in confusion. What's true, what's not true. If there's nothing, if there's nothing really true, what can we trust? There's only my truth or your truth. The greatest lie is that there are no lies. And the greatest untruth is that there is no truth. The immediate impact is that we are collectively developing as a culture a hardened heart. What God really wants for us is to speak the truth in love to one another. Look at verse 15. It says these words. Instead, we will speak the truth in love growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. There ought to be a place you can come to where you'll hear the truth week after week. There ought to be a group you can belong to where the truth is spoken to one another in love. There ought to be a place where we can be honest with each other and real and speak that truth in each other's life. And the last question I want to ask you, oh, if we are spiritually mature, we are active in the scriptures, and we're developing discernment. We aren't always thinking of ourselves. We, aren't, we admit it when we're wrong. We begin to serve people, and which brings up the last point. Are we growing in our service? Look at verse number 16. It says, he makes the whole body fit together perfectly. Isn't it amazing? that the body has different parts, and all the parts come together harmoniously to work together. And so it is in the body of Christ that there are various different parts. And when they, all the parts come together, there's a harmonious working of the body of Christ. Listen, it says, as each part does its own special work, it helps all the other parts to grow. When you use your gift, when I use my gift, we help each other to grow. And the whole body is healthy, growing up and full of love. So what, what we do here is we encourage people to use their gifts. You ever notice on the worship team that we rotate drummers? You know, this, we have today a drummer, and Ted's a good drummer. But if you come next week, there'll be another drummer. You see, if I come to church and I play drums and I want to be a drummer and they only have the same drummer, I never get a chance to drum. But if we rotate drummers, everybody gets a chance to be a drummer, you see? We all have a part to play. And so we rotate in order that people have a place to serve. A story is told about a person who was watching a construction crew. And on this construction crew, there was a truck and a guy with a shovel. And he came out and he would dig a hole. 
and then he went a little farther down and he would dig another hole, go a little farther down and dig another hole. Then later in the day, another truck came with the guy with the shovel and he filled in the hole and then he filled in the next hole and he filled the next hole. And so a farmer was watching this happen. Early in the day, there was a guy with a truck digging holes. Late in the day, there was a guy filling up the holes and they said, what is going on with your crew? And he said, the guy who was laying the sod didn't show up today. Little joke. You see, what was happening was the guy who puts down the sod didn't show up so they couldn't put the grass down. You don't understand, right? So what happens, what happens when we don't show up? We don't work together harmoniously. You see, the church is a place not for spectators. The church is a place to engage, to be involved to find out, to stir up your gift, to encourage one another, to serve one another. And when we get into the game, when we play according to our gift, when we work side by side with one another, the church is functioning as God intended it to function. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we're all in this journey. And you speak to various things in this text about walking in a manner worthy of the calling we've received with all gentleness and humility, being patient with each other, overlooking these faults, forbearing with each other, in love, maintaining this unity in the very bonds of peace. For there is just one Lord and one spirit and one body and one faith and one baptism, and one Father, and you call us, Lord, to, you give us these gifts. And these are beautiful expressions. These are motivational for us, Lord. They give us joy. They are for the common good. They're for your glory. And you gave pastors and teachers to equip the body, to build us up, to prepare us for works of service. Until we reach this unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. So each one here, Lord, is on this journey. And we're to speak the truth and love to one another. And then we are to engage in ministry with each other. Would you, Father, by your grace, would you allow us to be on this journey moving toward maturity? Would you point out to us, Lord, the immature parts of us, the parts of us that needs your love, that needs your work, would you allow us to connect with other believers and encourage each other in small groups? Would you form within our church little triads of men and women that we get together for the purpose of edifying one another? Would you allow us, Lord, to grow up as a congregation, to become unselfish and serving one another? Father, this is my prayer, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Hi, good morning. I've had the honor of leading the Good News Club team at Waverly Elementary for the last nine years. And you know, Scripture says in Romans 10, 13, that everyone 
who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's everyone, no matter their age. It doesn't matter how young, how old, or in between. If you call on that name of Jesus, you will be saved. And you know, every week during Bible time and memory verse time, we always bring it back around to our need for a Savior. Because of our sin, there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And this year at Good News Club, we reached a total of over the whole year, 52 children, but we have 18 who called on the precious name of Jesus. Yes. And the balloon rep. The balloons represent a life that gave themselves to the Lord. And their names are Athena, Jaden, Jesse, Zion, Carson, Brittany, Henry, Gerard, Aurora, Elijah, Jace, Riley, Rosita, Noel, Dominica, Rashad, and his sister Anaya. You know, right after the scripture says about calling on the name of the Lord, it says that how can they believe if they've never heard? And how can they hear if no one has ever told them? And you know, most of the children that we reach at Good News Club are unchurched children. They don't go to church anywhere. Some of them are there because it's free babysitting. But that's all right. They're my favorites. I love those. <laughs> And, and if we had not given them the opportunity to come to Good News Club after school on Fridays, they would not have heard, and then they would not have had the opportunity to believe. You know, what a joy it is to lead others to Christ, and then to help them as they begin their walk on their journey of following Jesus. It's what we're all called to do, all of us. That's what Jesus wants us to do. And you know, right after that verse that asks those, <clears throat> those questions, it says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And I would like to acknowledge and thank some people who have very, very beautiful feet because they helped bring the gospel to Waverly Elementary this year. If you're here and you want to just stand just for a moment, ladies, I know you don't, but that's okay. We love you. All right, we have Sharon Shaw, Sheila Mitchell, Krista McDonald, and her beautiful daughter, Kylin. We have Susan Lupinetti. Yeah. We have my husband, Jack, and my son, Chris, Elaine Luttrell, and Gina Pasquale, and also to the Mops of Frederick, who supplied snacks for us this year. You know, in September, we're going to begin again planning and training to bring the good news to Waverly Elementary. And we would love for you to be on our team. And you could have beautiful feet, too. Thank you. God bless. <laughs> In the beautiful providence of God, he put together an evangelist, an evangelist team working together, side by side, engaged in ministry, using their gifts 
to bless these children who heard good news. Now the angels in heaven rejoice. And on this earth, we're so encouraged to see God at work. And we get a chance to be part of what God is doing on this earth. Let's give him praise. Father in heaven, we praise you that your plan A was to include us in this work of evangelism, to raise up people like Karen and her team, to take this gospel into the school setting for these children who had never heard and see their lives dramatically changed. We pray that they would become deeply rooted in their faith, they would produce beautiful fruit in their lifetime, that they would have this walk with you, Lord, where they would learn things like gentleness and patience and humility. They would learn how to maintain unity. They would learn how to use their gifts. And God, we would see them blossom and grow. Father, may this day be marked with thankfulness to you, for you're the God who does all this good work through us. And we praise you, Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you next week.